0: Chris Biddle and welcome to episode 15 of Inside Agriturf and for this episode I've gone across the pond to catch up with Bob Clements and Sarah Hay. Bob founded uh, Bob Clements International 30 years ago to provide training courses for dealers in the agricultural, lawn and garden and outdoor power equipment market and he was joined in the business by daughter Sarah just over 10 years ago. And today, Bob and Sarah speak at numerous conferences and dealer meetings and provide dealer development programs used in more than 20 countries. Last year, Bob and Sarah ran training sessions for UK dealers at the Service Dealer Conference at Oxford, and Sarah contributes a regular column for Service Dealer magazine together they've just published a book, You're the Problem and the Solution, aimed at dealers who are having trouble sorting out their priorities when so many day-to-day issues get in the way of seeing the bigger picture. So, hey, Bob and Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. And before we get on to the book, uh, I really ought to ask what sort of impact COVID-19 has had on dealers business across in the U.S. this year.
1: Yeah, um, I'll start, Chris. We're so excited to be having this conversation with you. But COVID-19 you. in the States, there has been a the, the overarching emotion that dealerships have had in the States is uncertainty. That's that's the overarching emotion. It's like, okay, in the states you either have to deem yourself as an essential or non-essential business. And when March started, we had to go through this process with our dealers helping them determine if they were essential or non-essential. Yeah, same I over would here. Say, Yeah. Okay, very good. So I'd say 97% of our dealers were able to deem themselves as essential yep. for a number of reasons, but they help the local law enforcement make sure that their units are up and ready to be used. They're sitting there helping with farming. Like there's all of these things. And so 97%, I would say it would be my, my get gut, gut guess on the percentage have deemed themselves as essential. And as a result, they have had probably the best yep. year of their entire lives. <laughs> and, and it's, but, but with that being said, there's still like this heaviness of uncertainty. In the States, we had uh, what we call PPP money that was given out by the government. You could apply for it. This was a set amount to help you cover payroll. If there had been some, um, issue coming up where you couldn't take care of payroll and so most of the businesses it was just for small businesses most of the businesses were able to receive it and it was supposed to be forgiven and so they're going through this uncertainty still they're still walking going okay i got a hundred thousand two hundred thousand three hundred thousand dollars from the government on ppp money but is it actually going to be forgiven and so like they've got the heaviness of that they've got the heaviness of uncertainty manufacturers ran out of units because they there's just so much demand and there wasn't enough supply. And so they go uncertainty of, do I, am I going to have enough inventory? So yeah. there was all of these things that brought it. But at the end of the day, the majority of our dealers have had their best year ever. We're looking at 2021 very optimistically with So that's really where we're, where we're set.
0: Over here, it was far more clear cut as what constituted a non-essential business or an essential business um, in the ag sector that they, they all... Quite easily fell into the ag into the essential it was a little less clear with the lawn and garden dealers, so okay. what most of them did is that they closed their showrooms but mm-hmm. were open at the back. Was that similar over there it is that 's
2: basically what happened over here. What Sarah was saying, what we were able to do with our dealers is to show the cities and municipalities because our our lawn and garden dealers work on generators on cutoff saws, chainsaws, and so. Yeah. For most of the municipalities, they looked at them and said, look, if we have a storm, whatever. We have to have these dealers here doing the service on them, but chris it 's the same thing. Uh, a lot of our dealers closed a showroom and then they were doing virtual shows, yes. walk arounds on equipment and it worked out really well from that perspective so uh, yeah, very yeah. very similar to what what you guys were doing over there
0: yeah that that 's right um, and so in a way and just picking up your point actually about them looking forward for next year, however, what we 're hearing over here is great fears about the availability of infantry into next year. Uh, are you hearing that over there from dealers?
2: Not, not so much. Uh, the manufacturers over here uh, have really kicked up production. Once they were able to open their plants back up from the COVID thing, because they had to shut their manufacturing down, so they weren't not, you know, they had the inventory out there. But I think there's gonna be plenty of inventory here in the States. Mm-hmm. I think Chris, the biggest question that we're having with our dealers is is as we're doing, we're all of our dealerships that we work with are in the process of doing their projections and budgeting for 2021. And so the biggest question we're getting is, is so should we throw 2020 out because it was an anomaly, right, mm-hmm. we had more sales than we ever did. So as yep. a part of our trending, should we kick that out? Yeah. Or should we normalize it in some way? And so we're kind of more about not throwing it away because we did have two months. Typically over here, March was a terrible month. And then April, uh, all of a sudden we, we didn't gain all of March back, but we gained a lot of it back in April and it kind of continued on. I think the thing that we're really encouraging our dealers to look at is, as they get with their manufacturers over here on their market share, their growth in the market share, if they exceeded their market share growth in 2020, then they probably had sales in 2021 that happened in 2020. So we probably pulled some of the business out of 2021 and moved in there. So that's really what we're encouraging them to do. Look at your market share number for what the manufacturers projected. And if you exceeded your market share, most likely you did it because you had Equipment that was going to be bought in the first quarter of 2021 that just simply got moved over here. So, we're encouraging our dealers to be a little bit more conservative on their projections for 2021, uh, but don't throw out 2020 because, uh, again, you know, there's we need that data, we need those kind of five years to do it with it.
0: So, uh, in a way, because we're in uncharted territory and we've never been in this place before, the publication of your recently published book um, is, is very timely, which, if I might right, uh, remind listeners, is called You're the Problem and the Solution. Does that suggest that uh, dealers are their own worst enemies?
1: Absolutely. That, that's exactly what we find, Chris, is that so many times what happens is that The dealers get in their own way they they get so focused on actually being in the business that they're not really running the business and if they can simply move out of their own way they can be the solution to the majority of the problems that they're experiencing inside of their dealership
0: how difficult was it uh, or perhaps easy to decide on the title for the book (laughs)
1: You know, it came about as a joke um, <laughs> I, I initially, but and my husband suggested it. He said, you know what would be so funny is if you called this you're the problem. And I said, oh, my God, you're exactly right. And then as I was thinking about it and we had conversations, uh, it became the real thing. We go, oh, my God, it's so funny. It's who we are as an organization where we kind of have this slapstick humor. Uh, it could re- relate to my dad as he also is the problem. So, no, I'm just <laughs>
0: kidding. <laughs> oh, I don't want to get in the middle of this. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) you mentioned earlier on bob about using zoom and 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 new techniques and certainly a lot of dealers i'm talking to are saying we're having to ramp up our presence in social media and facebook and 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 so on because if the customers can't come to us we have got to go to the customers so i'm not sure exactly when you put this book together but would there be content that you might have added if you wrote it a years from hence from now I think
2: we I think we would have you know uh, because again it is an issue and and Chris it's the same thing here in the states You know, we're really encouraging dealers to reevaluate their website, number one. We're finding over here about 70% of the people that are looking at equipment start with the website now. They don't just drive into a dealership. Mm -hmm. And so then making sure the website is not just a, a, a brochure, but make sure that it's actually interactive. What Sarah always talks about where it's frictionless, that you can move in and out of it. Uh, very easy. Uh, where you take your, you know, uh, we have our dealers over here that do a YouTube walkarounds, and those are attached to their website yeah. uh, and, and things like that. So uh, we're really encouraging our dealers to really evaluate their website. It, it can't be static anymore. It can't be just kind of a brochure. Yeah. Uh, you people have to interact with it because they'll make a lot of decisions on your website before they ever come on into your dealership because. Mm-hmm. Well, half of the people over here are kind of done with COVID-19. We got another half over here that are crazy thinking <laughs> that it's, it's you know, it's the black death yes. uh, that's going to come around. So we, we always tell our dealers we have, to be, we have to be concerned about both of them. We have to take the people that are uh, still afraid, and we have to let them interact with us digitally. Uh, and then we have to also have the people that aren't afraid, make them feel comfortable when they come into the store and things like that. So uh, I, no, I, I think-
0: yeah, yeah. Are, are the manufacturers driving this at all? Because I'm not sure whether you, you've seen it, but uh, one of the early exponents of a walkaround products was a manufacturer, was David Withers, who you probably know, who was oh, yeah, uh, president mm-hmm. of, of Jacobson uh, and now looks after Iseki UK. And he was very, very quick on the ball uh, at his paddock at home recording videos and, and, and so on and putting them on YouTube and, and a lot of dealers used that. So it's a combination of manufacturer involvement and dealer involvement. How do you see it?
1: Yeah, no, I would agree. I, I think there is a mix of it, but I find that the most powerful use of a walk around and utilizing YouTube to make it happen probably comes from the dealership yes, side. Because yes, it's yes. <laughs> it's not overly produced. It's not like and it's very relatable to the end user consumers. I well, while while they love to see the product, I think so many times the manufacturers know too much about the product where they get into the nitty gritty in a way where the dealers say, Hey, here's the product. Here's the unit we're talking about. And in three minutes, I'm going to walk around this unit and give you all the information that you as a consumer really want to need. No, I I know. I love that the manufacturers know every single bolt that is on that unit, but the consumers don't actually care. So (laughs) we just want to make sure that we're hitting on it. And so I think What we see as the most effective is when dealers take it into their own hands, have the salesperson who is in the dealership already walk around the unit in three minutes or less and explain it to the consumer. They have that relatability. They have a common face when they actually do come into the dealership. They really hit on all the points that they need.
0: And they're selling themselves. And there's a good chance that when the customer comes in, they might actually meet the guy who actually recorded the video. That's Exactly. exactly it. If we look at family businesses, would it be true to say that family members coming into a generational family business face more challenges in trying to introduce new ideas, new technologies? Is there a gap between what the old man did and his old man did and what the newcomers into the business are doing?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that it's a it's a big challenge, Chris, regardless of how many generations there are between the next gen coming in and the generation who started it. There's always going to be this challenge in this transition period. We're a family business and we work with thousands and thousands of other family businesses across the country. And as we walk through that, you know, I think one of the challenges we see specifically is when the next gen is coming into the business and the first gen or second gen is still active in the business, there is this transition that happens that the other employees get a little nervous about. Now, I can't tell you the amount of stories I have where a next gen comes in, maybe they're 18 years old, and the owner puts them in a manager position right away. And everybody else goes, holy smokes, how am I supposed to deal with this? Like, how am I supposed to deal with this? So there's that transition. So whether it's, I work with lots of manufacturers who are second, third gen as well, and they deal with the exact same issues that the dealerships who are bringing second and third gen in deal with as well. You know, Bob, from your perspective, what are you seeing?
2: Well, I think it's the same thing. And I think it's like Sarah said, you know, we, we are a family business here. I've got 10 great people, but you know, all three of uh, my kids are involved with the business, I think one of the things that I made them all do is they had to work someplace else before they started working with me. So I needed them to get their hands dirty and understand that I I was not the antichrist. I was actually their savior, (laughs) the one that was going to keep them there. But I think, again, I would encourage... the first generation like myself in there, you know, you, you've got to not, you can't put your kids who's not been actively engaged in the business in a management position. They've got to earn, they've got to earn that respect that they're going to need to have from the employees. And so I, I don't care if you start them sweeping floors, the organizing things, setting up equipment, working in the shop, they need to get dirty and they need to get dirty so that the other people that are in the business go, okay, well, they didn't get that silver spoon handed to them. They worked their way up and they, you don't have to have them there for 10 years, but you know they do need to touch every part of the business and they need to get dirty as a part of the business. And that's where the other employees will step back and say, okay, uh, I respect that right? I, I respect this person doing it. So I'm, I'm with Sarah. I think the mistake is is bringing, bringing in um, a family member and all of a sudden they get they get pushed to the front of the line. I just think that is a very negative thing for your employees. They, they need to earn the respect, not because it, they were born into it, but they've worked themselves
0: into it. And, and perhaps in the employees' mind, minds, it doesn't look right. Um, exactly. It doesn't, right. doesn't feel right. If we could just move on to the relationship between the dealer and the manufacturer. I mean, there are obviously distributors in the middle of all this, but Mm -hmm. if we just sort of consider the manufacturer and the dealer at the moment, now a good dealer manufacturer relationship is absolutely vital to to, to the success of a a dealership. You mentioned in your book, uh, the difference between a manufacturer regarding the dealer as a customer and regarding him or her as a business partner.
1: Yeah. So, so in the book, we do talk about that where a manufacturer, there is a certain group of manufacturers who view their dealer base as their customer. So these manufacturers, it's a very transactional relationship. They say, okay, you are my customer. And as a customer, you can just leave and go anywhere else. Like you say, okay, I'm not happy with what I'm getting here. I'm your customer. That's fantastic. Great. I can go somewhere else when I'm not satisfied. Much like happens inside dealerships. If you have a customer who gets mad, they just leave and go somewhere else. Like that's the whole entire problem. Yes. And so the dealers and the manufacturer relationships who are the most successful are the ones who view their dealer network as their partners. Because a partner, if you're a partner in a business with somebody, you don't, just when you get mad or frustrated that you didn't get the inventory you needed, you don't just say like, I'm out of here, but you're both looking towards the best interest Mm -hmm. of at the end of the day to see the sales to see the health of each other and the customer relationship you don't care about the health of the other person but with a partnership you care about the health of the other person's business.
0: Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, there is a difference between manufacturers. A lot of manufacturers are quite small and family businesses th- mm-hmm. themselves. But if we, if we relate to the multinationals, Sarah, you studied psychology, I know, yes. do, but do the, do the manufacturers, particularly in a multinational business, understand the psychology of being a, a dealer to being a family mm-hmm. business
1: uh, no, I, I would say, I would say some of them do. I would say there is a handful, especially here in the States that have put a lot of work into figuring out the understanding what actually goes on into the dealership world and what it's like. And I probably could name them all on one hand. Okay. Yeah. So, so as I look at them, there's probably on one hand, I can think of the ones who have really put in the work to understand their dealer base, train their salespeople who call on dealers to interact with them in the way that they would as a partner. Uh, but for the majority of them, they have no idea what actually goes on. They don't know the pressure that's on these owners as they're trying to make payroll. They don't understand that they're that many of these dealers, the only vacation that they take, at least here in the States, is to the national dealer meeting. Like That is foreign to so many of the manufacturers. But again, I, I'm not going to put out the ones who actually do get it and have put the work in to really understand it.
0: Do, do you see it as part of your your, your business, your role as, as Bob Clements International, um, educating manufacturers in, in, in how to deal with dealers?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, Go,
2: we, Go ahead, Bob. We do. I, I think, again, and, and like Sarah said, we have a lot of the manufacturers that we work with that really look to us for that kind of feedback. Uh, and that's, and that's what we try to do because I think I'm with Sarah on it. You know, you've got to have a good partnership and your partners both have to be excited about the partnership. What I see happen is, is when, when a, a manufacturer calls you a partner, okay. Cause they do <laughs> use that term, but they don't treat you like a partner. No. They treat you like this rabid dog that they have to deal with. Uh, that's when you start having problems because when a dealer loses passion for the manufacturer, that's going to impact the sales that that manufacturer is going to get. And then like Sarah says, then that dealer's going to say, you know, you don't treat me very well. And then somebody comes along with, you know, a a nice, pretty product that promises in the world. The next thing I know, then this dealer has another line that's competing against the exact same line they have now, which is not healthy for the manufacturer or for the dealer. You know, so I I think again, they, they do look to us uh, and we, like say our world is dealerships, that's what we do. We work with manufacturers, but we really, our whole world is working with dealers. And I think we have a pretty good sense of where they're at at any given point. But it is, a, like Sarah says, it's an issue. You can't just jam stuff down the throat of a dealer and call them a partner, because that 's not what partners do with each other they actually they actually communicate, work together, and, and we do have like sarah said we 've got a handful of manufacturers that truly get that. And, 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 their, and their dealer channel is strong and healthy yes. and vibrant. They're not looking to add any other lines that compete against it. And I think that's the thing that manufacturers have to look at. If you've got your dealers that are taking on lines that compete against your products, mm-hmm. they're not happy with the partnership anymore. No. And so you need to do a little bit introspective and not blame the dealer, uh, but look at yourself and say, maybe I as a manufacturer caused this.
1: Yeah. So what you're saying, Bob, is they may be the problem.
0: They may be the problem. Exactly <laughs> There's a book right. in there somewhere. <laughs> now, your book is, is full of uh, very useful hints and tips on uh, maximizing uh, profits and margins and so on and how to go about that. But actually, you, you know, it's the simplest things in a in a business that, that so often are easiest to fix. And, and one has to come back to that uh, well-known phrase, you meant never get a second chance to make a first impression. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think actually in this month's or this issue of Service Dealer, your piece that you wrote uh, actually focuses on that, uh, Sarah. The, the, the smiley acknowledgement when somebody comes through the, the door can sure. either immediately turn on or turn off a customer
1: yeah absolutely and i think you're you're exactly right the first impression that you're making for the dealership as a whole is critically important and What people are buying when they come into the dealership is not the manufacturer brand that you represent. What people are buying when they walk into your dealership is you. Your sign that says you carry X, Y, or Z manufacturer and product is the magnet that drew them in. But what actually will make the sale is you. And so that's what they're trying to decide if they're going to spend their hard earned money on is you as a person. So if, if they weren't interested in what you were carrying, they would have never walked into the dealership, but they're trying to find somebody that they are comfortable with in order to actually hand the cash over to. So that's, but you're right, Chris, it's, it's all about the first impression and making sure that your brand is not the signs and manufacturers you carry, but it is you as a dealership and personality as a whole. And Bob, I know you talk about this a lot. Do you want to expand it all?
2: Well I do. You know, when I train salespeople in dealerships, I always teach them that they're the product that people buy. It's not the product that they sell. And like Sarah said, so you always have to ask yourself a question, am I a good product today? You know, am I is my attitude good? When somebody walks in, am I happy to see them, even if it's at the end of the day and it's the 18th person I've talked to today about it. It has to be a fresh experience for the customer. You have to dress right and the inside of your store really is the the piece of it there. So it, it is, Chris, it, it is, and I agree with Sarah on this. Once they made a decision to pull in your dealership, they're comfortable with your brands or they would have never d- driven into the mm-hmm. dealership. The only thing that they're trying to figure out is who do I give my money to that I can trust that's actually going to do what they said they're going to do for me as a customer. And I think that's really the essence of the whole piece.
0: Do enough dealers tend to look at uh, their business through the customer's eyes i i I do well remember when i had a dealership uh, which was on a trading estate uh, and i had to call down there one evening when it was dark and i looked through the window and i I thought this doesn't tell me anything it doesn't doesn't inspire me to come into Mm -hmm. this particular dealership and it was my dealership so yeah (laughs) i I really had an uphill struggle there but but it, it really do the customers actually to look at it through the customers eyes do you think
1: yeah i i would say most of the time no you know you get so used to what's happening inside of your dealership it becomes like background noise it'd be like if you have a train or something that goes behind your house consistently before you know it that noise doesn't even register for you anymore. The same thing happens inside of a dealership. You just get so used to it. You go, oh, that paint is peeling and no big deal. I'm used to it. And a customer pulls up and they go, oh my God, they don't take care of their building. Why in the world would they take care of me? Like that, that is the disconnect. We call it congruency. So what you're saying doesn't actually match what they're seeing. And so we have to constantly work on that you know, as we um, have done research in the States and partnered with other people way more into this than we are, but there, the statistic is if somebody has a phenomenal experience at your dealership and they were to leave, if your dealership does not look appealing from the road and they had the best experience in the entire world, 30% of the time, they would not actually recommend you to a friend because your Mm. dealership doesn't look appealing from the road. Like that's huge. And you've done everything right. You took care of this person. So I think so many times we do get in this place that what's happening with the look of our dealership and inside of our dealership just becomes background noise, much like a train. We just don't even see the issues anymore. Yeah.
2: I, I think, Chris, one of the things, too, that I always encourage dealers to do is to take an employee whether it's their husband or their wife that doesn't work there, but have them come in uh, and take their phone and just start taking pictures of things around the dealership that catches their eye and then send those pictures to the owner. Because again, it's, it's a fresh look. Like Sarah said, it's a fresh look and, and you don't tell them what to take a picture of just say, I'd like to have about 20 pictures. You just walk around in the shop and the parts department, walk around and take pictures and send those to me. And I think that's the eye-opener for a lot of them because the things that, like Sarah said, we don't notice that little chipping paint that now is peeling. But when people walk in and you don't tell them what to do, those are the things that really catch their attention. So I find it's a real easy exercise and the spouses typically love to do it, have some fun with it and just tell them, don't tell them what to take pictures of, just walk around and get me 18 to 20 pictures of my dealership. That's a, it's a good little exercise to do.
0: Yep. Your book is absolutely jam packed with with hints and tips. But I think it was you, Bob, that uh, in the book, uh, you were once asked at a conference, if you had one piece of advice to somebody taking over a business, out of all the things that you write about, what would it be? Can you remember what that was?
2: Well, you know, it goes back again, is is to, you know, the big piece to me is always going back and remember why you started the business, you know, so, so get refocus on what it was that made you get in the business because that's the thing that's going to drive everything else forward, Chris. And, and I was talking about the story there at the GIE where a young couple came up to me and they were really, they were, they were frustrated. They were burnt out. And I took the time and said, let's go back because this is not how you started it. You started it. And I walked them through a little exercise and, and got them re-engaged and re-excited about the business. And I think that's it. Remember why you started it, because it sucked the life out of you. You've got to go back and you've got to re-remember that. And that'll really re- kind of fire everything back up again. And then from there, you can move forward. So without that excitement, you can do all these other things, but you're still not excited about the business anymore. None of it's going to matter. You've got to get yourself re-excited about the industry and about your business, and why you're doing it in the first place. So that to me is always the, the piece. Get, does that, get that vision back.
0: Does that come back to your psychology textbook, um, Sarah?
1: <laughs> you know what? Close enough.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Over the years, you will have seen many, many examples of dealerships and showrooms and you've talked to dealers. Has there been one memorable experience that you've had or example that as as really of a dealer thinking outside the box, which you might not have thought before?
1: Yeah, Bob, I'll, I'll let you kind of cover this. I know you have lots and lots of examples, probably <laughs> yeah. some good and some bad. <laughs>
2: yeah, we do. You know, one of the things that I love about working with small business owners is they're as entrepreneurs, they're never short of ideas. Uh, the biggest thing is to try to, get, get, to keep them from con- continuing to create ideas and actually take the good ideas and make the ideas work. But yeah, f- f- from everything again, and I go back to uh, just with the COVID thing, we had so many dealers that we worked with that were out of the box thinking. I have a dealership. They're down in Guthrie, Oklahoma. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be meeting with them this afternoon to go over all their financials. Uh, but there's a great dealership. It's it's an ag dealership. Uh, but uh, they were about a million dollars behind their projection by the time they hit uh, April. And uh, because they, they they people couldn't come in, they didn't get their open house done and things like this. And so we really talked to them about like we're talking about this, a virtual open house where we did, they did walk arounds and they did all of those things. Like this, they had six large, very expensive balers. They're in a big hay area, and 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 uh, they were going, and they were all due, so they were the the floor plan was done on them, so they were going to have to start paying interest on them. And their concern was, is how are we going to move these things? So, so again, uh, this. Ray Beck, he won't mind if I mention his name, but, uh, but Ray and his sons, so it's a family business, they started really focusing on how could we do a virtual open house? How could we walk people through? How could we give people prizes for being on our, our meetings and things like this? And so they worked with the manufacturers hand in hand and they literally created this virtual open house. If you were on this meeting that I had, this Zoom meeting as we're doing this walk around on this piece of equipment, you know, if you were on that, then you were registered to win prizes and things like this and they ended up in a period of one month they they ended up a, a plus a million dollars over their projection they did almost two million dollars wow. worth of business in one month not only did they catch up the million they added another million to it and they sold all of their bailers during that open house and their sons were telling their dad we need to order more bailers he was convinced <laughs> they didn't need to order a lot more bailers but but, uh, but anyway, but I think that's a good example of where, you know, in the face of adversity, uh, that's what I love about working with small business people. In the face of adversity, they are the most creative creatures in the world. They will find a way to make it work. And that would be just one example. I've got, like Sarah said, dozens of examples and, uh, of just different things that people have done uh, as they've gone through and do it. But that's one where they were down to crunch, They were a million dollars off already for the year. And in 30 days, they took the million, they got it back, and they ended up a million dollars over where they should have been for that following month. So it was an an enormous thing for them. And now they're doing it all the time. So they're not not saying, okay, it's done. They're doing the virtual walk-arounds and doing the Facebook stuff. So it's really changed the way that they're doing business, and they're doing phenomenal.
0: Well, that really is an inspirational story of entrepreneurial spirit by a dealer in today's climate. So really, Bob and Sarah, I'd like to thank you very much for joining me today and sharing your thoughts uh, with me.
1: Thank, you, thank Chris. you, Chris.
0: And so it was simply not possible to do anything but scratch the surface of providing good practice for family-owned independent dealers in a short time available. But I hope that Bob and Sarah planted a few seeds to help your business grow, especially during these strange times. Bob and Sarah's book, You're the Problem and the Solution, is available from their website and there's a link on the show notes for this episode and is also available in a Kindle format on Amazon. I'm Chris Biddle. Thanks for joining me. And this is Inside Agritov.